Today's reading is from Jonah chapter 3, from verse 3 to chapter 4, verse 2. And if you've got the church Bible, it's on page 775. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This is God's word. It's always good to start a new series in Scripture. This time we want to flick through the Minor Prophets part of the Old Testament Uh, We've called the series The Gospel in the Twelve, and the idea is that we might take a one-chapter sample of each of the Twelve Minor Prophets to get a feel for what they're about, first of all, uh, but also then to see how they carry the same Gospel concepts that we otherwise sometimes think are just in the New Testament. Uh, As Christians, we do that. But there's actually gospel written all through the Bible. In fact, everything was always waiting for what was finally revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And, And so it has to be all through Scripture. And so we should, from time to time, find ourselves in Scriptures like this, discovering God in in old ways, brand new, so to speak. And the hope is that you then spend the week reading through the rest of the prophet. Uh, On your own, read through it, and in the midweek Bible study too, if you can read through it, just to see if you can tap into that gospel in these 12 prophets even more. So while it might seem, I guess, on New Year's Day that that it's a bit random that we just dropped in the middle of this book, Jonah, and not even neatly into one chapter, reading from 3.3 to 4.2 as we did, that's what's kind of behind the thinking, that we just open up a page or so just to catch a sense of the context and purpose. And so too, though, the gospel that runs through these minor prophets. 
And Jonah, I think, is a pretty good, safe place to try that first up because Jonah's probably one of the most familiar of the minor prophets. I mean, most of us here have probably heard of Jonah, you know, Jonah, the prophet who was swallowed by a whale. So we can uh, drop into the middle of this story fairly safely uh, for most of us and without any notice. And by dropping in chapter 3 here, uh, we can look a little deeper than the, the fish narrative that we know uh, and think more about what we learn of God here in this book, Jonah, and what we learn of his gospel. Uh, as we step into the whole series, I guess, a, a word too might be helpful just about God's prophets generally. In our culture today, we still use that word. We think of prophecy, though, in our culture as, as just something that tells the future, and that's what it means to us, what we might call foretelling. But in the Bible, the more essential role of prophets was just to speak the word of God, or in other words, tell forth. Tell forth the word of God. Try to keep that in mind when you open any of these minor prophet books. A prophet's primary role is not to foretell, but to tell forth God's word. And when they do, in Scripture, foretell in that second kind of role, and they do do that, they foretell you know, future events that basically fall into two kinds of categories. Judgment events and redemption events. Judgment and redemption. And those judgment and, and redemption events that they foretell tend to be quite clearly associated with a call to obedience and trust in God, which means that the foretelling bit is actually just part of that more important telling forth work that God's prophets do. God sent his word through these prophets for a reason, to guide and instruct people in his ways. So prophecy comes in words of warning and rebuke and correction and, and, and encouragement and exhortation, generally calling people to, to come back to God and, and to then obey and follow and trust in him and stand clear in their minds that they do follow God. The consequence of continuing in rebellion against God is ultimately going to be judgment. And the only hope for humanity, therefore, is that we turn from our rebellion and, and we live with God as our God. So, so through that part of the message comes the salvation and those are the twin themes of the prophets, really. Judgment and salvation, the necessary judgment of sin and the hope of salvation, despite that judgment. The, the prophets become a whole lot easier to read if you keep those two themes in mind. Even when the language gets difficult and confusing and, and the original context is lost on you or, or, or so obscure that you, you know, you've got no idea about the various places and peoples and names and all of that stuff, you should still be able to pick up the main thrust of these prophets' messages because it's usually one of those two things, judgment or hope. And most of the time it's, it's actually a recurring and even weaving together of those two things. The righteous justice comes out in one breath that, that God must bring justice against our sin, but in the next breath the prophets just roll straight into undeserved mercy that God will grant to his people. Judgment and hope. That's the basic gospel key to unlocking these prophets. Jonah, as I say, is a pretty good example. It's a perfect example, really, for us to draw those two things out and see them up front clearly today as we start this series. And we could have done that, actually, by dropping into to either of two beautiful halves in this book. We could have seen God's judgment and mercy at the personal level for, for Jonah or God's judgment and mercy at the national scale for these people of Nineveh. 
And because, as I say, I figure people are more likely familiar with the, the personal account of Jonah's rebellion against God and his restoration. You can tap into that later when you read through the whole book. It's in chapters 1 and 2. Today, though, I thought we'd spend our time in the second perspective as the crisis in Nineveh teaches us about God's judgment and his mercy. Now, if you have your Bibles open there, let's pick it up where we started in, in chapter 3 and verse 3. This is after the second word of the Lord came to him. Uh, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. breadth. Uh, Jonah began to go into the city, uh, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the first of those two themes that weave through these prophets in the Scriptures. God's righteous judgment. His judgment. Nineveh has been judged and it will be destroyed by God. The reason being that Nineveh was a city full of wickedness. You'll see that from the beginning of this book when you do read it later in Jonah's first call. Uh, but, but if you just glance back very quickly, it's on the page opposite. Chapter 1 and verse 2. God said to Jonah at the very beginning, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. And we get it again in our reading, explicitly from the mouth of Nineveh's own king, down in chapter 3 and verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hand. Nineveh is a city of wickedness. And that's why Jonah has been sent there to prophesy, to call people to turn to God, to repent of their sin, or there will be judgment from God. That's what's buried into his message, as short and sharp as it is, because while God is patient with us, eventually he must call sin to account. He must be a just God, or he is no God at all. So he sends his prophet to warn the people of Nineveh that the judgment is about to come against all their sin. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's a pretty explicit timeline, isn't it? 40 days. We might guess, I suppose, that people would either hear that and write Jonah off, you know, one of those crazy people on the streets, or, I suppose, like, like, Outside, extreme outside chance, they might listen to what he says and, and they might think about how soon 40 days is and they might contemplate their own sin and, and they might think about the way that, yes, okay, a just God must eventually uh, you know, call sin to account. And all those kinds of things might go through their head and they, and they might be convicted and they might even repent of their sin. And they actually do all that stuff. They don't write Jonah off as a crazy guy. They repent of their sin and they humble themselves before God. Verse 5, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Fasting and and sackcloth and and ashes, verse 6, these are outward signs of an inner humility. A posture of remorse and repentance has just swept through Nineveh at Jonah's prophecy. 
Even right up to the very king, verse 6, the warning of God's righteous judgment was, was enough to bring about total repentance in this city, which for good measure the king then enforced. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and, and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. By way of context, we should probably say Nineveh's not even in Israel. Nineveh is actually the capital city of what was at that time the rising superpower nation of the whole world and, and a nation too that within a couple of generations of this message from Jonah is going to carry out God's righteous judgment against Israel's sin. And even though they're a foreign nation, that they respond to Yahweh's prophet here and, and they repent. They repent of their sin. They throw themselves upon the hope of finding the second of those great themes that weave through the prophets. And the king of Nineveh himself tells us here what it is, verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent. God may turn and relent. From the judgment we deserve, he may relent and he turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. The king is actually capturing fairly crisply for us there those two things this book of Jonah teaches us about God. He is righteous and just, and, and therefore he will judge against sin. But he's also compassionate and merciful towards us to turn from his righteous anger at our sin and, and save those who humble themselves in repentance. And as I say, they're the twin themes that run right through the word of the prophets in Scripture generally, not just here in Jonah, but that's a pretty nice, tightly woven example of the both things together just in that one verse, verse 9. Thank you, King of Nineveh, for setting that out for us. God is righteously angered at our sin, fiercely angry, and yet he is compassionate too, such that he might save if our world today is going to get a proper fix on God, then it's vital that they see those two things together, that he is both just and yet merciful too. And yet if you think about it for just a few minutes, that actually creates a great tension. A great tension. I mean, how can he be both just and yet merciful. That tension runs right through scripture and it's one of the great wrestles that we have to have if we're to have a hope of understanding God and hearing him call us in his gospel. Even Jonah himself here, the prophet here, is, is still wrestling with that tension if, if you know the rest of the story. Let's step from chapter 3 into chapter 4. And you see what I mean? When God saw what they did, chapter 3, verse 10, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But that displeased Jonah 
exceedingly. And he was angry. Jonah only seems to understand God's mercy as if it somehow undermines God's justice. So he thinks that God's justice has been compromised here by by way of his mercy to these people. God relents from pouring out the destruction of judgment that they deserve. And to Jonah, that, that seems as if God is being unjust now. Compassionate to them, yes, but but just about their sin, no. No, Jonah thinks God's judgment is wrong and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee from this and, and run to Tarshish. I knew, Lord, that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. The Ninevite king didn't know God so well, and and so he doesn't sound quite so sure. Maybe God will relent. But God's prophet Jonah knew this of God all too well, that God is gracious and merciful. The problem is Jonah just can't hold that in its biblical tension with God's justice. To Jonah, mercy should somehow be secondary to God's justice. It has to be either the one or the other for Jonah, and surely God's justice must come first. So when Nineveh wasn't overthrown, Jonah seems to think that God has dismissed his sense of justice to allow for this compassion. He thinks God's justice has now taken a back seat. Is he right? Is God either or, just or merciful? And should one come before the other? That's what we need to wrestle with in the prophets. That's what I want to explore with you in these prophets as we open them more and more in this series. God's justice and his mercy and how in actual fact he upholds both. Jonah is asking the questions around that here and we need to ask them as well. The interesting thing about this book, Jonah, is that the biggest message God teaches us here is, is the message directed to the prophet himself. And Jonah needs to learn more about the second aspect of God that we've been talking about, his mercy. God is a gracious and merciful God, as Jonah himself knows, verse 2. That's why he first ran away from this job back in chapters 1 and 2. Jonah knows of God's mercy and grace, but he thinks it should play second fiddle to God's righteousness and justice, at least for these Ninevites because that's what we're like. We think that God's mercy should win out for us, but that his judgment should prevail on everyone else. It's actually what we're like. Jonah sulks over this. He wishes to die even, verse 3 says, and then he sits and he watches to see if God will cave. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there and he sat under that booth in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Will God cave, Jonah wants to know, and let his judgment trump his mercy in the end? 
In other prophets, the message we'll learn is that God's justice is perfect and, and it will not be dismissed on account of his mercy. But the lesson of Jonah runs the other way. No way is God's mercy dismissed for the sake of his justice. Because God is, without any shortfall or discrepancy or caveat or asterisk or clause, a God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, as, as Jonah himself said. His mercy is not secondary in any way. It too is perfect. And there's the tension. Jonah is wrestling with that tension. God is, God is perfectly just, the scriptures tell us, but he's also perfectly merciful. It would seem, though, that by the constant weaving together of those two things in the word of God, through, through other prophets we can open up, they might have been a bit more comfortable with that tension. In fact, all through scripture, there are people like Abraham, people like David, people like Moses, people who, who were just content in that great tension. They knew full well of their sin, but so too they knew of the grace they would receive from a holy and righteous but loving and compassionate God. God's people have always just had to trust that, that he is able to reconcile those two things. For you and I today, it's easier, a whole lot easier, because that tension of Scripture found its peace at the cross of Jesus Christ. His crucifixion is this great mechanism that, that reconciles how God can indeed pour down infinite justice against our sin and yet have infinite mercy on those he saves. Jesus died for our sin. No compromise was made because our sin is still judged and it's judged to a complete degree of punishment in him, but, but it's redirected from us who deserve it, brothers and sisters, onto the infinite Son of God, for he stepped in to take our judgment in our place. So God's righteous justice against sin, he was fully absorbed. He was fully satisfied on that cross. And so his mercy can flow to us without compromising his justice in, in any way. And all and only because of Jesus on that cross. The tension that all those Old Testament people of God just trusted that God could resolve has now been resolved at the cross. God is both perfectly just and perfectly merciful too. And he always has been and he always will be. So God's people in the Old Testament age were, were saved by the same hope and trust in the righteous but compassionate God, that the same hope and trust that we are saved by. It's just that we on this side of the cross today know, know how God resolved that sweet tension. He put forward the once-for-all-time mechanism of the cross where his justice and his mercy did meet. The Bible's not separated into plan A and then change of plan, plan B, as, as some people seem to think. God's people were always waiting for, hoping for Jesus. They just didn't know all the details of him. But we do. Nobody, past, present or future, can be saved from the judgment of their sin but by God and his righteous and merciful solution. 
Jesus Christ, who was crucified for sin. Whether their faith was in the promise of that beforehand or, or, or their faith is in the witness and testimony of it after the event is kind of neither here nor there. As I say, once you, once you start looking for those two things, God's justice to judge sin and his mercy to save sinners, you'll realise that there's gospel actually all through the prophets and all through the Old Testament as well. But we ought to get a bit more specific in our outcomes today from this word God gave to Jonah. If we think about Jonah's tension in, in light of that cross that we know, then then we know that our hope of salvation is, is all about where we stand with Jesus in terms of that once-for-all-time peace that God has put forward regarding our sin. If you don't want to receive God's judgment, then you must come and receive of his mercy. If you won't receive that mercy, then his judgment must still come. Salvation comes to those who are forgiven and spared from judgment. The Ninevites show us what that looks like, that we realise our sinful state, we realise how deserving we are, therefore, of judgment, but that we will humble ourselves and repent before God. We will call on God and petition him in in any way we can to, to grant to us his mercy and grace. That's what it looks like. And and knowing what we know today, we know that all of that comes to us through that mechanism of Jesus' cross. There is no other way. Nothing else has ever been put forward to reconcile that great tension and nothing else ever can be put forward. So we must come to Jesus. We must come to the cross and repent before God if we are to receive of his mercy. If we refuse... If we won't repent and continue to reject God and what he has held out to us, then then I'm sorry, friends. We can only then look forward to judgment. So perhaps you're looking at Jonah today or listening to this later and you you go home and you examine your life and and you realise that, yes, okay, you are sinful and, and yes, okay, therefore you stand under God's judgment. What should you do would be the next question. Well, Well, the answer is written here so nicely in in this text. Look with me again in in chapter 3 and verse 7 at the posture of repentance, the the humble calling on God's mercy that the Ninevites so readily show. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Will you take that on urgently if you haven't yet done that? It's not these explicit and exact very things that's needed in every case, you know, fasting and sackcloth and ashes and so on. It's the posture. It's the humble, repentant posture the plea to God that's required in every case. If you fall down before God and repent of your sin, then through Jesus Christ you will find his mercy. God will relent and with mercy he will save you from perishing as you deserve. Just as this scripture goes on to say, verse 10, when God saw what they did, 
how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And this is pretty good news, this gospel according to Jonah. There's no end of convoluted and, and burdensome and, and, frankly, impossible religions out there otherwise in the world, but, but this is how simple the Christian gospel is. You don't need to pay your own way out of sin or, or anything like that. And that's God's grace to you, my friends, in itself, because you'd never get to that point if you tried. Rather, we are just called to be humble and repent and call on God's mercy in the name of Jesus Christ. There in, in Jesus we find that, wow, he's already paid for our sin. And so therefore, it's just his mercy that awaits. His mercy awaits. What will you say to that? Many of you, though, sit here today looking at Jonah as Christians as Christians, having done this, you have repented and you've humbly trusted in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of your sins. For you, then, I think a lesson from Jonah is, is to take proper hold of God's mercy and don't let it go. There is no question or doubt. There can be no question or doubt as to the depth or the value of God's mercy to you in what he did for you in Jesus Christ when he reconciled that tension. The devil will come along and try to deceive you out of that great truth. He'll tell you that it's not quite enough. He'll tell you that God's justice needs more or that his mercy is somehow not full, or, or, or maybe not for you. The devil wants to have you turn someplace else. That's why he'll tell you those things. But you will not find assurance of salvation any place else, or in anything you could do, or in who you think you should be. You can only find assurance... In God, in who he is. So, so read this scripture and latch onto verses like verse 10 and remember that God does not change. He is merciful and gracious to those who but humbly and penitently turn to him to receive of the peace that he has now held out in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. Look at these guys in Nineveh. Hopeless, broken repentance in the dust, calling on and hoping in God's mercy. That's all they've got. That's all they've brought to the table on this. And all of those things are ways of saying that they have brought nothing to the table because they've got nothing to bring. They left aside their sin, but so too they've left aside any hope that they might have otherwise had in their, I don't know, their customs, their ritual, their social things, their, their cultural things, any hope they might have had in themselves to try to make good on their sin and avoid this judgment. This, this here is the very heart of the gospel revealed to Jonah. So learn this today, friends. We have a gracious and merciful God. So call upon God for for his total mercy in Jesus' name and then walk here on out in trust that yes, you can count on God to be true to who he is. And he is perfectly just. Yes, he is. But so too, he is perfectly merciful. 
to everyone who will turn to him. Scriptures say in Acts 17, he calls on people, everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sin and turn to him or face the judgment that his perfect justice must carry out. Scriptures say to us in Acts 16 that so too, whoever trusts in his promise of rescue from that judgment, well, the Son of God has purchased us with his blood and and we will most surely be saved by the perfect mercy of our God. But I have to leave that decision point with you. Enjoy the gospel according to Jonah through the week. And let me pray. Heavenly Father, we always thank you for your scriptures and we pray and thank you for this one in Jonah. Thank you, Father, for being righteous. Thank you for being righteous and just against sin. We need a God who is truly good and righteous. But that leaves us under judgment, Father, for, for we are most certainly of sin ourselves too. So thank you then for being merciful. Thank you for sending Jesus who who reconciles those two things, your justice and your mercy, both in glorious perfection, so as to reconcile us to you. Father, bring us then to a state of of humility, a state of humble repentance and, and dependence on you and keep us in that state. And help us to know more and more so the infinite depths of your mercy to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray these things and pray you keep us safe in your gospel, world without end. Amen.